If you would, open your Bibles to Titus 3, Titus chapter 3. We're going to notice verses 3 through 8. Titus 3, 3 through 8. Paul writes, saying, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable among men. When discussing Christianity, there are few things as misunderstood often as grace. Some think of God's grace as if it were an afterthought after having done all we can do and being as obedient as we possibly can, and then He throws that in. Others treat it as if it were a magical potion, meaning that when bad things happen in our lives because of the choices we have made and we've done something bad, then God gives His grace to us, takes all that sin away, though often we continue to make the same choices that caused the original sin. Even among New Testament Christians, grace is something that is the subject that we can't really understand in the minds of some. It's not really clear in its entirety. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. I think we can understand about God's grace. But we have to dig into the Scripture and we have to look exactly at the things that God has left for us. Grace is the foundation that makes it possible for people to be saved. For us to be able to stand in the very presence of God justified before Him. We have to have grace. Paul said this, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9. So we have to have grace. It's foundational. It's a must-have. Without God's grace, faith would not save any of us. We first must have grace. God had to first want to save us but then we had to want to be saved, right? That's how grace works. God wants to save us. It's the beginning point, but it cannot save us alone. Grace alone has never saved anyone. God wants us all to be saved. That's grace. He's extended the opportunity to us, but we must accept it. We have to want to be saved according to His conditions. Now, we just read that grace is a gift. It is a gift because if it was something that we earned, then God would owe that to us. But He doesn't owe us grace. It's a gift offered out of His love for us. 
I want us to be sure that we understand exactly what kind of works Paul was talking about. What works was he discussing, saying that we're not saved by those works, lest we could boast? Well, he's certainly not talking about works of God. He couldn't. He's talking about works of men. Works designed in our own minds that allow us in our own minds to be saved because of something that we've done on our behalf. Now, God asks us to perform certain works that originated in Him. Those aren't works of men. Those are godly works. Those are works that He uh, created. On one occasion, the people asked Jesus. They said, how can we work the works of God? John six twenty eight. And He was and is very clear in His response. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. John six twenty nine. Faith is a work. It is a work. When we mention the plan of salvation to some people, they say you're trying to work your way into heaven. No, we're not trying to work our way into heaven. We're trying to accept God's grace so we can enter into heaven. Faith is a work. Without faith, we'll never be in heaven. Just as without grace, we'll never be in heaven. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians saying this, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, he said, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Faith is a work. It's a required work, but it's a work of God. It's not a work of man. We couldn't come up with that plan. We couldn't come with a plan of salvation. It's not possible. We don't know how to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves from ourselves without God's grace. But faith is a work. The plan of salvation consists of works. But again, those works originate in God. Let's notice what those works are. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews eleven six. Paul said that was a work. We have to work. A desire to repent and return to God is a work. As Paul described the presence of Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus, he said this. He said, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet or worthy of repentance, Acts 26, 19 through 20. Repentance is a work. What about confession? Confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is that a work? It's something that we have to mechanically do with our mouths, isn't it? But is it a work of man? No, of course it isn't. It's a work of God and Jesus warned, if we do not do that work, He will deny us before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10 32 through 33. It's a godly work and we must do it. Making the choice to submit to baptism for the remission of sins, not because we're already saved, but for the correct person or reason. That is a work of God. And Jesus said if we did it correctly, we would be saved. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
You have to have both. You join the two together. Work of God. All those works of God are required if we want to be added to the Lord's church, Acts 2.47. It's absolutely a requirement and it has never been up for debate. But the work doesn't stop there. Paul admonished the Christians in Corinth to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.58 The work never stops. Grace truly is a gift. But it is a gift that has attached to it certain conditions and works of God. Unless we fulfill those works, those conditions that God attached to it, we cannot receive the gift. That doesn't mean we've earned it. That just simply means there are conditions attached to it. Without grace, and we need to understand this, we believe in grace. Without grace, there is no salvation. So I want us to investigate a little further. This doctrine of grace. We need to understand exactly what it is and exactly how do we receive it. For us to do that, I think first we need to look at and understand, and this is our first point, man's condition. There was a reason that God had to offer grace for man to be justified in His sight. The first couple, we go all the way back to the garden, they found themselves in a dire situation. What was that? Well, because of their dire situation, we have found ourselves in a dire situation. And that is that we are all dead in sin unless we access God's grace. Notice what Paul said, Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who was he writing the letter to? Christians. He was not writing the letter to the Ephesian church to those who had not obeyed the gospel. He was writing to Christians. We can see that in the first chapter. He said, And you, and you Christians, who were once dead to sin, He quickened you, He made you alive, brought you out of your trespasses and your sins. He continued on, Ephesians 2 verse 5, Even when we were dead in sin, when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us or made us alive together with Christ, By grace you are saved. How did He make us alive? How were they once dead in sin, but no longer in sin? By following that pattern we just discussed. Those are the conditions attached to grace. Because of our condition. We're dead in sin without it. We have to have it. Death is a very serious condition for those who are not prepared to meet God. Think about that for a moment. For those people who are not prepared to meet God, what does death mean? It means no life, it means no hope, and it certainly means no future if we're not prepared. Spiritual death isn't just serious, it is lethal and it is ugly. We don't want that. We want no part of that. And I think it is at this point that many people begin to misunderstand exactly what grace is. Many people think they have accepted God's grace on His terms when in actuality they have not. Paul said this, 
Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If that is the case, and he admitted it, he said in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. We have all been at one point dead in sin if we have obeyed the gospel. So does it stand to reason that if all have sinned, all those who are of accountable age and mental capability, if all have sinned, is it not reasonable to understand that we have to do something to get rid of that sin? Paul said we were talking to the Ephesians. We were once dead in sin. They had to do something to get out of that position. We were dead in sin before God extended His grace. Dead in sin, grace means that we deserved something else. So exactly what was that? Paul was very clear when he said this. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We were dead. We deserved to be dead. But because of God's grace, He extended His hand of life. If we'll take it. If we will accept it. All who've sinned. Every single one of us who've sinned, and that's all of us, all of us who are of the age of accountability, deserved death. Because that is the punishment for sin. But, because of God's undeserved mercy, and that's what grace is, undeserved, unmerited favor, He has allowed us the opportunity to have access to the gift of eternal life through Jesus. That's what grace is. What we have to understand is anyone not covered in the grace of God, whether through having obeyed the gospel or from having come back into the light after having left it, we have to be covered in grace. We have to be walking in the light. We have to be faithful. Anyone who is not in that position is the object of God's wrath. Everyone. That's not the way God wants it to be. That's just simply the way it is. Paul warned, Ephesians 5, 6. He said, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Paul is declaring, he's warning us, be careful who you listen to. Be careful because if they tell you that you're not the object of God's wrath, They're being disobedient. You have to have done something. You have to have entered into God's grace. You have to have accepted it. The writer of Hebrews admonished, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. Why? It's only fearful if we have not accepted God's gift of grace. It's free. He's willing to give it. There's nothing attached to it other than His commandments. No one can keep us from accepting it. No one can prevent us from uh, taking part in it except ourselves if we refuse God's conditions. 
The wrath of God is kindled against everyone who lives in sin. It is kindled against everyone who has not accepted Christ's commandments and done what He's asked. When we look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we read verses 6 through 9, Paul is describing the second advent of Christ. He came once in the form of a man. He grew into adulthood. He gave Himself on the cross. He ascended back to the Father and He promised, I will come again, John 14. He promised that. Now when we look at John 14 and we read those descriptions, that's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? If I, if I go and prepare a place for you, He said, I will come again and gather you unto Myself. How does that coincide with Hebrews 10.31? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, we must have a group of people who have done those things necessary to accept God's grace, and then we have those people who have not done those things necessary to accept God's grace. And there are two types of people that do not accept God's grace. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. When Christ comes back with the shout of the archangel, He's going to bring a flaming fire taking vengeance on two groups of people. Though that those that do not know Jesus and those who do not obey His gospel. So whether we realize it or not, if we're not in the grace of God, we'll be punished for that. So what does that mean? How, do, how is that fair? How is that just? Because He's given us His message. It's our responsibility as individuals to access God's grace in the way He put out for us to do that It's our responsibility to discover it. We have to search it out. Remember when Jesus said, If you will knock, the door will be opened. I remember a few years ago, a good friend of mine was preaching on a summer series that we were having in in Memphis, and he was talking about knocking on the door. He said, Have you ever noticed when there is some kind of a tragedy in the world? Hurricane Katrina some kind of a tsunami, some kind of terrible thing that takes the lives of people. Tornadoes go through the south and and just decimate homes and kill people. He said, have you ever noticed you never hear a knock at the door of the uh, uh, world atheists? No one's knocking on their door for help. Who do they come to? They come to God. At least they try to. And if we will come to God on His terms, if we'll accept His terms, if we'll knock on His door, and we acknowledge that we'll do what He says, He'll open that door. If we're looking for the truth, we can find it. I believe through God's providence, anyone who is searching for the truth will be able to discover it. Whether God places someone in their lives, or whether they are able to sit down and read the Bible, which is possible, and come to the proper understanding of what God wants. The wrath of God is kindled against people who sin. That's the whole problem with Adam and Eve when they were expelled from the garden, wasn't it? They were cast out of the garden because they had decided to live in sin. And do you know and realize up to that point, they'd only ever sinned one time. But that was enough. That's enough to bring about death. And so God cast them out. 
Even those sins in the lives of people which have been hidden, those sins that we camouflage sometimes in our lives, God still knows about them. We have to get rid of that. The condition of sin brought about death. But because of God's grace, He brings us comfort. That's our second point. For the people of the world to overcome the sin of the world, God's great mercy is required. We have to have it. If that's not there for our taking, we cannot be saved. Paul told Titus again, Titus 3 verse 5, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost." Works of righteousness. Now, we that seems like maybe there's a contradiction there. We're talking about the works of men, godly works, as opposed to the works of men. We can't work our way to heaven by coming up with works on our own. But Paul's talking about works of righteousness. He says, you're not saved by works of righteousness. We can't feed enough hungry people. We can't clothe enough naked people. We can't help enough sick people. We can't do anything that is righteous like that enough outside of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ to get us into heaven. Even those righteous works aren't going to do it by themselves. Are we required to perform righteous works after having obeyed the gospel? Amen, absolutely. We're to help our brethren, Galatians chapter 6. We're to help all men when therefore we have opportunity, especially those of the household of faith. But God offers comfort. Prior to the incarnation of the Word in the form of Jesus Christ, the law of Moses was given to people so they could understand exactly their condition, their need for comfort, the seriousness of sin. Romans 3.20 We required a way out of sin, didn't we? Couldn't get out on our own. No. I was talking with someone the other day and, and uh, they had told me about this proverb that, that I had heard before. They were in a foreign land and they'd been studying with an individual and, and he recited this proverb. He said that he dreamed in the proverb that he was walking along and he fell into a hole. And as he was in the hole, he was trying to figure out a way out. And Confucius came along, looked down into the hole and said, if you get out of the hole, be sure not to fall back in it. Said Buddha came along and he, he reached his hand down the ways. He said, if you will reach up and grab my hand, I will help you out of the hole. He couldn't reach up. He said the Lord came along, got down in the hole, put him on his shoulders and walked out of the hole. That's what the Lord does for us if we accept His grace. If we'll do what He's asked us to do. He will provide that comfort. But it's only provided if we're obedient to God. That's a prerequisite. You have to have grace, but then you have to want the grace. You have to be willing to receive it. We required a way out. But unless it is received, it does us no good. Paul acknowledged Romans 3, 24 through 25. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins, 
that are passed through the forbearance of God. If we want the remission of sins, we have to come into contact with His blood. That is just the plain truth, isn't it? Without His blood, which was given by the grace of God, we cannot be saved. Those who are dead in sin can gain life through Jesus. Instead of being the objects of wrath, we can be the object of His great love for us and His comfort. Peter said that we're a chosen generation. Those who have obeyed the gospel, those who have accepted His grace. He said we're a chosen generation. He said we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Isn't that comforting? He said you're a peculiar people. You're different from the rest of the world. You behave differently. You speak differently. You dress differently. Everything about you is different. You're peculiar. That ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. Those who obey the gospel get something that we all long to have. A clear conscience. Have you ever had a guilty conscience? Will it keep you up at night? Will it cause you to have stomach ulcers? Will it cause you to not want to eat? Will it make you sad in general? Will it destroy you eventually? That's what a guilty conscience will do. How do we avoid that? Well, if we receive the grace of God, we can avoid that. But how do we receive the grace of God? Peter compared the salvation of Noah and his family to baptism, saying this, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we have our sins washed away, it clears our conscience. We can sleep at night. We can, be, we can have joy in this world. We can have all those things and all that comfort that God wants us to have. If a person chooses to return to a lifestyle of sin, guess what? The clear conscience leaves as well. Why is that? I believe that a properly trained conscience is in God's plan. When we learn what God wants and we're obedient to it, we will remember that. And when we decide that we want to leave God, every day of our lives that He has blessed us with having, we still understand I am not in a safe position because I gave away eternal life. I had it right in my hand. I chose to go back into the world and it will bother our conscience if it's properly trained. Now it has to be properly trained. Paul had a clear conscience his whole life. He told those that were questioning him in front of the Sanhedrin, he said, All my life I've lived with a good conscience. But he was a murderer. He killed Christians. His conscience wasn't trained properly. But once we train our conscience according to the New Testament, it will allow us to know we've given up eternal life if we go back into sin. However, when you live a life of faith in Jesus, John said this, You may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, verse 13. Because of our condition, God gave us comfort. And it is through that comfort that we receive the crown of life. That's our third point. 
God's truth tells us that when we, we obey the gospel of Jesus, that there's things that we have to do. We have to continue to grow in faith. We have to continue to try to get better. We have to continue to pattern ourselves after Christ. We're working for perfection even though we can't attain perfection in this life. We still have to work for it. We can't use it as a crutch and say, well, I can't be perfect, therefore I might as well enjoy the things of this life. That's not growing as a Christian. We have an obligation to fulfill. There are things we have to do that God expects from us. It is possible, and it has happened, that people have lost their crown. That's possible, isn't it? There are those who would like for us to believe that once God grants grace, we have to worry about nothing else. It doesn't matter what we do. There's no way that we can fall from grace. Have you ever heard someone say that? You cannot fall from grace once you have obtained grace? Well, if that is the truth, the Apostle Paul, the inspired writer of half of the New Testament, was not aware of that. He didn't know that. God's grace makes us alive. It makes us different. And because of that, God expects some things. The Galatians must have not understood that change in life is necessary when we accept God's grace. There must have been some issues in the church of Christ in Galatia because they were wanting to bring in parts of the old law and dilute the new law. Paul was very clear in his answer to that. He said, Christ is become of no effect unto you, Galatians 5 verse 4. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, here it is, you are fallen from grace. Now again, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone say, you cannot fall from grace? I have. But what does Paul say? Now here's how they respond, or at least what I've heard. Well, they weren't Christians to begin with. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. Who was Paul writing the letter to? The churches of Galatia. What is the church? It's the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 Who is allowed to be in the church? Those people God adds to the church. How does He add someone to the church? Through baptism, Galatians 3.26 and 27. We're baptized into Christ, which is His body, which is the church, He's writing to Christians and He's telling them, if you bring in something into the new law, out of the old law, you have fallen from grace. Let me ask you again, have you heard someone say, you cannot fall from grace? It's a lie. You can fall from grace. If someone tells you that, get away from them. Immediately. Don't speak with them about it. Don't try to convince them. If someone is adamant that you cannot fall from grace, they're getting their information from somewhere besides the Bible. And it's hard to have a discussion with someone like that. Becoming a little clearer on exactly what grace is, the undeserved mercy of God, the first question any of us ought to ask is, how do I gain it? 
How do I obtain God's grace? The truth of the matter is that we must pass from spiritual death into spiritual life. That same process allows us to access the grace of God. And that happens through obedience and through faith. We have to have both. We have to have God's grace. That's the first requirement, right? Faith through obedience. Paul told those in Rome, Romans 6, 3 and 4, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Again, to who is he writing the letter? Christians in Rome. The saints in Rome. Those who had been baptized into Christ, who had been baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Notice what Paul said about our condition. We were dead, we were immersed, baptized, and when we came up we were alive, walking in a new life. That's our obligation, and that's how we obtain grace. In other words, we passed from spiritual death into spiritual life by obeying God's pattern of salvation. Paul did not consider the final step into salvation is just simply a good idea. Something that we ought to do to demonstrate our inner faith. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not what we find in the New Testament. We find five steps into initial salvation and then faithful living. Each one of them is just as important as the one that preceded it. Faith is just as important as repentance. Repentance is just as important as confession, and confession is just as important as baptism. And if you don't have all of them done properly, then we cannot obtain grace because that's how we get it. God offers it, but we must accept it on His terms. God's plan for man's access into grace has been in existence for about 2,000 years. There is no evidence in the Scripture pointing to a period of time when God would change His mind on how we access that grace. And do not believe when someone tells you that He has. Because that's not possible. He's the same today, tomorrow, and forever. Grace, faith through obedience, doing what God has asked us to do. God's grace is a wonderful life-changing gift. And it is right there for the taking. It can be experienced by accepting the gift of spiritual life. By doing the things that God told us to do. By trusting in Jesus' blood to do what He said it would do. Matthew 26, 28. And that is to remove sin from our lives. If I believe Him and I trust Him, I'll do it. No reason really to argue about it, is there? But for us to access His grace, His blood, and His mercy, we have to be obedient to His commandments, which does include faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins, and faithful living. Because we don't want to lose what we have gained. That's what grace is. 
That's how we receive it. Isn't that good news? That it is that simple? If you've never tasted the grace of God, if you've never had that clear conscience that comes with that, the notion that when you lay your head down at night on that pillow, if the Lord were to come back, that is good. We long for His appearing. We're looking forward to His return. If you can't say that, don't leave here tonight not being a member of God's church. It is so simple. It is so easy to have your sins washed away. It is so easy to come back to God if you've left Him, if you've given up eternity, and you know that you've done that and you want to come back. It is so easy to do that. All you have to do is repent of the sin in your life, make that confession to God of what you've done, whether publicly or privately, and ask Him to forgive you through prayer. We know that is the second law of pardon. We learned about that in James chapter 5 and 1 John chapter 1. Those who have obeyed the gospel can leave it, but they can come back as long as we have time and breath in our bodies. If you're subject to this invitation at this time, please think about that as we stand and as we sing.